Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. We jump into the time machine for Throwback Thursday, and this week we look back to maybe the most crushing game in Houston sports history. 28 years ago, this week, the Houston Oilers faced the Buffalo Bills in a first-round playoff game. The Oilers led 28-3 after the first half, 35-3 in the third quarter after a Bubba McDowell pick six. The Oilers lost the game in overtime, 41-38, after the biggest playoff comeback in NFL history, even to this day. It's simply known as the comeback. On Wikipedia, if you type in the comeback, you'll get a description of the game. A couple of years ago, I caught up with Oilers play-by-play voice, the guy who called the game, Tom Franklin, and we look back on it. Let's jump into our Houston Sports Talk time machine and listen back to my conversation with Franklin and his memories of that crazy afternoon on January 3rd, 1993 at Rich Stadium in Buffalo, New York. Is there a game in your career you're asked about more often? Oh, of course not. Nothing more than this this Oiler game on January the 3rd of of 1993. And uh, it's crazy the life that it has continued to have through all of this time. And one of the funniest things, Robert, is is when I first went back to the University of Houston, it was January of 2005. I'd gone back for the 2004 football season, and it was January 2005, doing basketball at the time, and uh, didn't fly with the team. We were playing Louisiana Tech, and uh, flew into Shreveport, or well, we played Centenary, and, and flew into, into Shreveport. And uh, I got in early afternoon after doing my morning sports on, on KTRH and, you know, hopping a plane, it's like 45 minutes to get up there. And I, you know, get in the hotel and put my stuff down, turn the TV on and just flip the ESPN and I'm not watching and, you know, taking my stuff out and, you know, clothes I need to wear for the game and all that sort of nonsense. And I'm hearing this voice and think, damn, it sounds like me. What would I be doing on ESPN? Turned around and looked and it's that it's the hour and a half documentary that the NFL films had, created that they're playing of the game because it happened to be January the 3rd of 2005. It was 12 years at the time. And uh, that's one of the goofy stories about that. You know, I come in there and why am I hearing myself? Oh, it's that game. Thank you very much. And then, you know, I know in January to to look for it because somebody's going to show it somewhere along the way. Once the NFL playoffs come up, it's going to be seen somewhere by somebody because that game will never go away until something else crazy happens in the postseason. What's your most vivid memory from that day or most vivid memories? Uh, there are two, actually. One is that, you know, we get to halftime and it's 28 to 3. And uh, I walk out of the, the broadcast booth to, to go use the restroom because I don't have any responsibilities at halftime. And you've got a few minutes to take care of business because you know you're not going anywhere else after that. Uh, and I walk out and I can see the entire contingent of Houston media. Everybody's working phones and computers and whatnot trying to book airfare and hotel reservations in Pittsburgh because that would be the next game the following Sunday in Pittsburgh would be the divisional playoff game. Everybody's trying to get to Pittsburgh as fast as they can, as as efficiently and as cost-effectively as they can. They're already on their phones, and they're going crazy. And so I go back in, and, of course, the second half happens. At that time, the, the NFL blackout rule was in place. And because of the injury to Jim Kelly and the fact that even the diehard Buffalo Bills fans weren't enthusiastic about this game being played. 
it was not sold out in 80,000 seat Ralph Wilson Stadium, which is what it was called at the time. They sold about 72,000 seats for that game. So it was basically filled. And by the time halftime came, it was starting to empty. And then when the second half started with the interception return by Bubba McDowell to make it 35 to 3, it was really empty. It was about half full at that particular point in time. Then the comeback started. And by the time you were in the fourth quarter, it was standing room only. Don't know how all these people got back into the stadium, but it was more full at the end of the game than it was at any other point in time in the ballgame because people from anywhere around were coming into Ralph Wilson Stadium to try and be part of this, what they thought was going to be an historic comeback, and they turned out to be right. So the fact that all the Houston contingent was trying to make their plans for Pittsburgh and the fact that it was, they were hanging off the, the rafters uh, at the end of the ball game, are the two biggest memories of that game. Well, you, you're a Houstonian. You followed the Oilers for years. Uh, did you feel like at 35 to three, it was pretty safe, <laughs> or or was there still that? Oh, this is the Oilers because the previous year, uh, people don't remember they they had a, a good lead on the Denver Broncos in the playoffs, and a, and there was the comeback, and and we'd seen so many crazy things happen in Houston sports history. This was before Clutch City, before the Rockets did all of the wonderful things. Uh, when they were behind, uh, w- what were your thoughts at that time? When McDowell returned the interception for a touchdown, you know, you thought that the momentum that you had in the first half and played an almost perfect first half offensively, in particular four possessions and four touchdowns by, by Warren Moon, you thought the game was pretty safe. You did not expect that to happen. And when I thought the momentum really shifted was first the, the onside kick by Steve Christie, who just bunted it down the center of the field and, and fell on it for the onside kick. But that led to a touchdown pass from Reich to Don Beebe, which shouldn't have been called. It, the, the play should not have stood, but they weren't using instant replay at the time. I remember seeing Beebe wide open down the sideline scoring the touchdown. We go to commercial break after that, and they're showing the replays afterwards. And you can see clearly on the replay, that he was, it was man-on-man defense. Jerry Gray was, guard, was, was with him, and it was you know, too deep over the top. And Gray did a great job of jamming him at the line of scrimmage, and Beebe stepped out of bounds, not far from the sideline official who didn't see him step out of bounds. If he would have seen Beebe step out of bounds, he's an ineligible receiver to catch the pass. And when Beebe stepped out of bounds and Gray saw it, he motioned to Bubba McDowell, who was the safety behind him, don't worry about him, he can't catch the ball. And McDowell drifted toward the center of the field, which really opened up the sideline for BB to be caught, uh, for to catch the ball in, in wide open space, because Gray left him alone. He told McDowell to leave him alone because he shouldn't have been able to catch the ball. But because the officials didn't see it, it's like holding. If the officials don't call holding, well, it's not holding. Well, the officials didn't see him step out of bounds, so he didn't step out of bounds. He was able to catch the pass, and that was the play that really ignited things for Buffalo. That gave them their second consecutive touchdown. You know, they had the score from Kenneth Davis, the onside kick, the touchdown pass to BB. They got two scores in a row without the, the Oiler offense ever being on the field, and that's where things really started to change, and that's when Andre Reid went to work and caught three consecutive touchdown passes that put him back in the ballgame and put him in front and uh, waited for Aldo Greco to at least force overtime. Yeah, people forget sometimes that, you know, the Oilers actually came back. They forced overtime. But the thing that uh, I think is shocking, as I, I rewatched the game at one point, 
And it just, Tom, it, it happened so quickly, the comeback. It, people think, oh, this happened over the course of a half. But really, it almost happened over the course of a quarter, right? It was within, you know, maybe six, seven minutes left in the game, if I'm, if I'm remembering right. It, it was back to being a ball game. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, you know, like I said, they got two scores quickly after McDowell on the very first possession. So, in essence, the Bills recorded three touchdowns in the first three possessions of the, of the third quarter the interception returned by McDowell, then their own touchdown drive for BB, the onside kick recovery, or the, the touchdown run by Kenneth Davis, then the onside kick, and then the touchdown pass to BB. So the first three times anybody had the ball, there were three touchdowns scored in the third quarter and didn't take a whole lot of time. Jim Eddy took a lot of grief for this game. Jack Pardee took a lot of grief. Uh, there was the thought, and I don't know if this is urban myth, that if the Oilers just ran the ball every single play, once they got up 35-3, to it would have almost been impossible for Buffalo to come back. Uh, Eddie's defensive uh, structure and, and that kind of thing, he was fired because of this particular game, basically. Uh, what was your perception as you were watching everything unfold, and, and what should be urban myth and, and what is real? You know, that coaching group was a very unified group that staff at that particular point in time, both offensively and defensively. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of myth was is that, that, that Jim Eddy wasn't a good defensive coordinator. I thought he was. And, you know, how things like this inexplicably happen, I don't know. And, and yeah, you have to point the finger at somebody. And, and I guess when, you know, you give up only three points in the first half, and then give up 38 points in the second half and into overtime, you know, the, the finger pointing goes to the defensive side. But, uh, you know, I, I knew that defensive group really well. And uh, they were great men. They were great coaches. They cared a lot. What happened? Did they, you know, was it the natural point of things that, all right, we're up 28 to three and you go at halftime and you're telling, every, you know, you're telling yourself, it's not over. We've got 30 minutes to play. We've got 30 minutes to play. But then when you come out and get another touchdown before your offense ever steps foot on the field again and it goes to 35-3, to three, you know, the natural human nature is that this game is over. And, and I don't think it was just on one particular person. I think it was a collective letdown by the entire group. The offense lost its focus. The defense, you know, couldn't stop them all of a sudden. You know, it was a complete and total team breakdown. It wasn't a particular person who was responsible for this. It was human nature. It's 35-3. to 3. Nobody's ever come back from 32 points down, especially in a half, in less than a half. And it, and it happened. It, it's one of the freak things of nature, if you will. And I don't think there's any one person who's responsible for, for that collapse. It falls on the shoulders of every player who put the pads on that day and every coach who was, who was involved in the ballgame. You know, and, and you could see them on the sidelines trying to get themselves back engaged in the ball game all the time during the breaks, but, you know, it just never happened. They, you know, once they turned the car off, you know, they couldn't restart the engine. The battery was empty. I assume you, you were around these guys right afterwards. Did, did you, you were on the plane with them? Did you, did you fly with those guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were on the charter. Yeah, absolutely. What was that like? I mean, it, it was, it was, it was complete disbelief and, and, and utter silence, as you might expect. Uh, you know, usually uh, that group took losses, you know, they took it pretty well. So, you know, it's, we, we go on to the next game, but 
this one hit everybody. I mean, it was it, it was an eerie pall on on the on the flight the entire way back. It uh, there wasn't a whole lot of life within everybody because nobody could believe what it was that they they saw that day and, and what what took place or what they took part in. Uh, it was it was a totally unbelievable moment, and uh, it was a very very uh, somber and quiet plane flight back because nobody could gather could grasp the magnitude of what had happened. What's your thought on Warren Moon? You know, he get, goes into the Hall of Fame, but for Oilers fans, they remember uh, so many of those games, the that game, the Denver game, the Kansas City game, where it's just a matter of maybe he makes one play in any one of those games, and it's a different perception of him as a Houston Oiler, uh, as a winner, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, we we've kind of rewritten it a lot for the people that saw him get into the hall of fame and, and, and what he did uh, prior to that and Canadian football league and the numbers that he put up and stuff like that. But, you know, if you were a, a Houston Oilers fan, uh, Warren moon was the guy that of course everybody looks to, he's the quarterback. Right. There's no question about that. Uh, you know, and, and he came in under very difficult circumstances when, uh, when he was signed out of the CFL with, with his then CFL coach, Hugh Campbell, who didn't work out very well. And, then you went through the Glanville regime, and uh, you know he, he got the ultimate success under Jack Pardee. Um, you know, and then he was traded after that. Uh, you know, Warren went through. It was it was a different time and a different culture, and and the things that he had to endure um, at that point in time. You know, nobody will ever really be able to to wrap their head around. And, and unless you could walk a mile into his shoes, you really couldn't relate to. But uh, he was an outstanding quarterback. Nobody worked harder. Uh, nobody cared more. Uh, it was, you know, when, when they went to the, the full-out run-and-shoot in 1990, uh, you know, he had a typical, if you will, quarterback's body uh, in that 1990 season. But the way he worked from 90 to 91 in the offseason, when I, you know, came back and really started to look at those guys for the 91 season, knowing that, you know, under the circumstances with the four wide receivers and only, you know, you're not really, you can't really come in and max protect somebody. If somebody's going to blitz, you know, you're going to take hits and the transformation of his body to know he was going to take the abuse that he was going to get under that particular system. He did everything he could to make himself the best possible quarterback. He could be for that system and for that circumstance and for that team. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget that. And he, was, he did everything. You know, it was just unbelievable. And uh, I have nothing but good memories of Warren Moon. And, yeah, do I wish he could have made one more play? Well, you know, you mentioned the Denver game. And, you know, they were on the road. They're up by two. And they milk as much of the clock as possible. And Greg Montgomery punts them down inside the five-yard line with less than two minutes to play. Is that Moon's fault that he didn't make another play? I'm not sure you can say that. You know, he had, he had the outstanding first half, the second half it went awry in, in, in Buffalo, and yeah, you know, but, you know, could the defense have made one stop somewhere along the way? Uh, it's not totally all on him. You know, the Kansas City game, um, you know, I think the Kansas City game was kind of, a reaction from the Buffalo game because when they got up and everybody says, well, if they just would have run the ball a little bit more, I think they tried to do that against Kansas city and that didn't work. That wasn't their personality. 
That wasn't the way that team was built. You know, the, the run game was meant to complement the pass game, not vice versa, which was the standard in the NFL at that time. Everybody built their, their offense around the run and complemented with the pass. It was the run that set up the pass. In the Oilers system, it was the pass that set up the run. So you had to throw the ball. When you got away from throwing the ball and tried to run the football, you got away from your personality, away from what you do, and it doesn't work out well. So I don't think it was, you know, does he take some of the blame? Absolutely. But that blame goes around to a lot of places, just not all on him. It's kind of crazy, Tom, but uh, O.J. Simpson uh, was, was working that game on the television side, right? He was in the stadium. You know, I, I don't even recall. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty – it was Charlie Jones and whoever – I forget even who was – was Charlie with Trumpy at that time? Yeah, I think it was Charlie and Trumpy doing the play-by-play. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Yeah, uh, so, so, so if, if, if O.J. was in the game, he was the sideline game, but I don't really recall him being there. I, uh, you know, I have a lot of memories about that game, but, but O.J. being there, part of the broadcast crew – uh, I I really can't recall Robert. Yeah, I, I recall. I, I don't I can't remember who it was, but I somebody had uh, said at some point that uh, they were in the elevator with OJ during halftime, and 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 he said the game wasn't over, and made sort of a snarky comment because it was the Oilers. I, I I'm trying to remember who that was, but I thought I had heard that, and and you know it's weird because you know just within the last couple of months we we've heard the stuff that's gone on with Warren. Uh, in his personal life and, and kind of get got caught up in the in this whole uh, me too and all of these different things that have the me too movement that's happened and and he's right. been in some hot water again so uh, these these some of these figures are back in the news oj just uh, just getting out of jail as well sure um so yeah it, it, it's been really nuts anything else that uh that comes to your mind on, on this game and, and and the whole experience and and just you know, is it something that frustrates you that this is the game that you get asked about? Or you just go, well, that's sports. You know, that's all part of it. A little bit of both. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, thing, we see crazy things happen, you know, uh, you know, to go back, you know, you know, 30 years from now, you know, how does Philadelphia beat Georgetown, the NCAA championships, and Raleigh Massimino get a, you know, get a, you know, get a championship? How does, how do things like that happen? Well, it, it happens because it's sports and it's unpredictable and it's why we play the games and you know you can figure out on paper all the time what you think is going to happen and rarely does it ever do that and uh, you know calling as many games as I've called and and various sports you know you always go in with with an idea of what you think you're going to see but you never see what you think you're going to see and it doesn't matter what level it is from high school games to college games to professional games and whatever sport it is you never see what you think you're going to see. You know, it's like, oh, the game's going to lay out like this. No, it never does. And and that's the beauty and the majesty of sports is the fact that we watch it because, yeah, we think we know what's going to happen, but usually what we think is going to happen doesn't happen. Or if the result comes out the way it does, it rarely comes out the way we think it was going to happen. Uh, that's the, the crazy part about sports. And, and, and uh, you know, it, it gets old and tiresome to, to have to rehash this game 25 years later, but... You know, I know it's going to be with me, and you know, I'm I'm proud that I was part of sports history. I mean, how many people can say that they were they were actually a part of sports history? I was. Uh, you know, how long will that stay? You know, maybe next year somebody blows a 38 point lead, uh, and people forget about me, and, and and I drift into the into the background, never to be seen again. Uh, and you won't make this call, or anybody else will make this call, and. 
you know, so while it's, you know, it, it, it's a good news, bad news kind of thing to, to, to have to go through and, and relive this kind of game because, uh, you know, from the standpoint was, you know, and the crazy part was is, is that I grew up in western New York and I saw the very first Buffalo Bills preseason game against the New England Patriots. So it's my boyhood team against the team I've adopted because I moved to Houston and I've become part of their team and I'm calling their games and on the other side of the the, the press box in the in the Bills uh, in the Bills broadcast booth is my boyhood idol still calling Bills games on the other end. Uh, there are so many crazy things uh, that that go on with that particular point in time and game that 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 I'll always remember and and I'll never forget. Um, and you know, we'll bring them back up again and and we'll have to rehash the good times and the bad times. And you know, I can't remember a team ever playing a better first half in a in a critical game than the Oilers did. You know, I mean, they were just absolutely letter perfect in those first four drives and the touchdown passes to Jeffries and the Slaughter and the and uh, and the Curtis Duncan uh, to get to that twenty-eight to three lead at halftime. And you know, it. You know, and and for Houston fans, and I, I definitely understand the frustration uh, because you know, how can you lose a game like that? And I see it, you know, evaporate before my very eyes, and I'm the one who's documenting it for everybody. Um, you know, I don't know how many times that, you know, like when I got back into town in the next few days and weeks after that, people saying, "Well, it was halftime," and you know, and we went out and we did this and we did that and we got in the car and they lost. What happened? You know, and, and people missed the second half of the ball game because they wrote the game off. Uh, but you can't write it off. It's a 60-minute game, and you got to play all 60 minutes before you determine a winner. Just like in baseball, you got to play all nine innings. You know why? Why can't somebody come up with 10 runs in the bottom of the ninth inning to win a ball game? I'm sure it's happened before somewhere down the line, because goofy things like that happen in sports. There were stories about people that shot their televisions in Houston. You remember that stuff happening? Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, shooting them, breaking them, you know, kicking them, whatever. Yeah, destroying them, absolutely. Wright puts it down. The kick is on the way, and it is good. And the Bills have won it. The Bills have won it. That was my conversation with former Oilers voice Tom Franklin. And, oh, I vividly remember being over at R.G. Seal's house. Of course, R.G., my old Houston Sports Talk co-host. We were beyond frustrated and angry. It's hard to imagine... But nothing we've seen with the Texans over the last two decades comes close to comparing to that game. And really, it was the beginning of the end of the Oilers in Houston, if you think about it. There may be no Texans if the Oilers didn't lose that game. Hope you enjoyed our Throwback Thursday. Looking back at the comeback, don't forget to go back into our archives and find more classic Throwback Thursday conversations. We blew the game. It was nothing that they did. Uh, to win the game, we gave the game to them because we, we just we made so, so many mistakes. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.